welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. It's so fun to record with other psychiatrists. Now, I haven't had very many on the podcast, but whenever I do, it's always such a treat. Well, earlier this year, a psychiatrist from Switzerland reached out to me, saying that she was a big fan of Back from the Abyss and that she was doing some work that I might be interested in. I wrote her back, we set up a video call, and I was quickly convinced that I had to find a way to sit down in the same room with her to record an episode. That psychiatrist was Julia King Olivier, and I got the wonderful news shortly thereafter that she was traveling to Colorado to attend psychedelic science. Julia was one of the first psychiatrists in Switzerland to begin working with LSD, psilocybin, MDMA, and ketamine through the government's Compassionate Use Program. Julia and her co-therapist Bianca King founded the Compassionate Care Center in Geneva, and Julia has over three years of working legally with these substances. Today, she shares her clinical experiences and wisdom while also explaining the Swiss model, which clearly has some lessons for other countries. One cool fact about Julia, she designed and teaches a course called Poetry, Symbol, and Story for Psychedelic Therapy in her role as a trainer for Fluence. A couple of notes, in this recording, Julia calls herself a pedo-psychiatrist. In the U.S., we would call this a child psychiatrist. Also, when she discusses the costs and dosages of psilocybin, she's referring to the pure chemical psilocybin, not psilocybin mushrooms. I'm here with Julia King-Olivier, who is a psychiatrist from Switzerland. Julia just told me that she was the 19th psychiatrist in Switzerland uh, approved to work with psychedelics, right? Now there's 40-ish? Yeah, it's, it's growing exponentially, I think, the... You know, people are catching on. It was a well-guarded secret for a country that were, that's the birthplace of LSD. Mm-hmm. You know, when I think about the amount of years of training I went through, you know, eight years of psychiatric and psychotherapeutic training, because in Switzerland we're both, we're a psychiatrist and a psychotherapist. We're mm-hmm. really proud about that. And so eight years going to, you know, big auditoriums and hearing talks and it was just a well-guarded secret that these laws have been on the books for off and on for decades, but at least the ones that I'm benefiting from now with my patients have been on there since about 2014, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. but nobody talked about it. Mm. Switzerland takes it very seriously, you know, that you only do what you feel you're trained to do, mm-hmm. you know, and and so I would say most of us who have embarked on this have sought out some sort of training. It's not legally put in the law. It's, for instance, what's not legally put in the law, you don't have to be a psychiatrist to do this. You can be a neurologist. You can be a general practitioner. You know, you don't have to be... To work with psychedelics. Yeah. yeah. You have to be a yeah. medical doctor, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. But you don't necessarily have to be a psychiatrist. Yeah. In your practice now, so you've been working, what, last three years, two mm-hmm. years with psychedelics? Is it, is it more common that people come to you seeking psychedelic-assisted therapy or uh, that you're working with people who are already in your practice that you're suggesting it to them, saying, hey, I think this is um, a modality that might help you? So I'm right now, up until maybe today, I was a well-kept secret. It was mostly your people that you yeah, so, were saying So, yeah, them. so nobody, nobody's coming to my office yet. This, that might change, mm-hmm. but... Um, I won't be accepting anybody new. Everybody who's who has been benefiting or you know who has undergone this therapy um, have been in my patient base for years, really for years. And there are a number of reasons for that. And also, I'm not 
suggesting that you should do psychedelics to patients. I, I view it, I'm, I feel very strongly about that, that it's, it's a personal journey. So I'm not going to wag my finger at my patient and say, you know, <laughs> you should do psychedelics, you know, and you know, wish, I'm ripping my hair could, out. I wish everyone could see, you know, wagging your finger vigorously. Yeah, I can't, you, know, you don't seem like a I'm, finger wagger. No, I, definitely not. <laughs> I've, had, I've had patients wag a finger at me, but I've, I've never wagged a finger at anybody. But I mean, they're, you know, I, I'm not, you know, Saying I'm I'm pulling my hair out here trying to help you you know let's try this as a last last ditch attempt no you know all my patients really saw my transitioning so to speak you know it it took some very physical aspects my I redecorated my office you know I I had to clear out and rethink the space you know it, it's very important the space so you know so patients came. After the summer, back from the summer break, remember in Switzerland we have holidays, and they're looking around, and it was a, a pretty radical change of decor, you know, because my my office had um, been sort of a decorated like a family room because I saw a lot of children, so I had plushy toys and doll houses and things like that in a corner. And for instance, I stopped doing pedopsychiatry um, as I transitioned into working with psychedelics. And um, on advice from the pediatricians in my in my neighborhood that I work with, and who are saying we think this is going to be mixed messages, and you could do all the psychoeducation that you want, there's still going to be it's going to be confusing, and we'd prefer that you stop. Yeah, and you need a good couch to do psychedelic work. Yeah, well, I have no, I have a couch. I mean, but I actually um, I don't do it on a couch. I actually um, I have a, a very sort of thick kind of poofy thing that that folds out hmm. on the floor and we sit on yoga chairs on the floor we're grounded mm-hmm. i i I've, i felt that being on the ground was was what what spoke to me but um so so yes yeah, so my all my patients knew what i was doing a lot of them had done the breathwork thing a lot of them had done the the you know the cold water thing and so they were following along and so when i came back from the training and they're like well what do you think would i be a good candidate. And so then we have a, a lot of conversations about it. You know, it's not... Now how do you think about... Say more about that. This It's not three how, prep sessions, right. you know? How do you think about how someone's a good candidate? Well, first and foremost, it's a legal question. They have to um, adhere to a, a very strict set of criteria. That's why my center is called the Compassionate Care Center, because these are compassionate use criteria that are borrowed from oncology. And so it's really item one, item two, item three. Item one is that they have to have a bona fide diagnosis and a serious one um, for which, number two, they have benefited or they, you know everything cons- you know, classically that can be done has been attempted for them. Mm-hmm. What does serious mean? Um, well, that would mean that it, it is um, life, negatively life-impacting. Mm. You know, so this means that they've either been hospitalized or they've been out of work, you know, so that, that their quality of affected life... affected functioning in a major yeah, way. Okay. major yeah. way. Yeah, the, the, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's not enough for someone with mild depression who wants to take St. John's wort and is into <laughs> natural remedies and with, thinks mushrooms would be just up their alley. No, that's not compassionate use. Mm-hmm. We're talking people who had their first hospitalization at age 12, you know, who've had... I, I, one patient, we were, you know, kind of reviewing um, prior to coming here in Denver. I mean, he, he, I think his 
he'd had 39 years of uh, mental health struggles. I mean, very high functioning on certain levels, but 39 years of significant uh, impacts. Uh, just with me, upward of 300 sessions of classic psychotherapy. Wow. He'd had just about every uh, serotoninergic uh, medication, everything. So well, People have to have serious illness and serious have tried... If not everything, they right? So treatment resistant means you've had two, you know, two different psychi- uh, s- um, psychiatric medications, preferably of two different classes. You know, it's not that you've gone from I don't even know how, um, sertraline to Prozac. Mm-hmm. Would that be how they're called? Fluoxetine. Yeah. Fluoxetine, yeah. right? So, you know, that's it. Would be more like you're going from sertraline to venlafaxine. You know, that would be. Or you've even, you know, a lot of patients have, you know, even more than that. Though I'm a low prescriber, I am, you know, and I don't like polypharmacy. It's a real, real thing of mine. Mm-hmm. But, um, so yeah, so they have to first and foremost adhere. And so the third criteria is that I can prove that there's enough evidence-based science that would support my claim that psychedelics could be helpful for the patient. And that, I mean, really, I mean, the science is exponential, you know, that's that's not a problem. That's the easiest part. But, you know, you have to footnote it. And, you know, now my footnotes are the, a page instead of, you know, two lines at the bottom. Now I actually have a page of footnotes when I when I apply. Mm-hmm. So, And also on the consent document, I put yeah. the same page of footnotes. LSD's been your go-to? So, you know, LSD is a Swiss as chocolate. In fact, it's even more Swiss <laughs> than chocolate. That, you know? is, that is so funny. You're right. It's from Switzerland. It's, it it's is. a Swiss product, right? It's, it's a Swiss product. Yeah. And, and so the Swiss feel really strongly about that. You know, they have a, a very positive connotation to this medication that was created in Switzerland. I and think that's so different here. I think... Uh, research has, has moved away from LSD towards psilocybin because yeah. people don't have a negative view of LSD. Is, uh, is it that or is it because the researcher wants to go home and have dinner? It could be that because, too, Because, yeah. you know, it, even in the it's summer, long, it's yeah. dark out when, mm. when you're done for the day. It's, it's yeah. anywhere from 8 to 12 hours. But that is totally fascinating, this idea that it's, a, it's something that the Swiss know. They're proud of. It's part of the history. That, it's part of the history. Yeah. You had said even before you know we started recording that um, you sort of start with a, start with LSD and work down to ketamine. Yeah, so I, I don't know. Well, initially I started with LSD because I hadn't trained in ketamine. Mm-hmm. Again, first do no harm, so I'm not going to start with something that I don't know how to do, right? Um, and so, so yeah, so I um, people so in in deciding indications. Firstly, it's you know. Do they have the? Do they meet the criteria? And then, I don't. Switzerland in general, and and I hope maybe practitioners in the future will not adhere to this notion that that research-driven notion that psilocybin is for existential distress or treatment-resistant depression, and MDMA is for PTSD. We don't 
see it that way. We we look more to what the substances are um, eliciting, what's the quality of the experience. And so we might really start, somebody with existential distress, we might start them with MDMA um, for many reasons. In fact, Peter Gasser and Peter Owen have written a lot of uh, papers about that, where their model for PTSD is they'll start with MDMA, and then they'll we can switch substances, so we can write back to the Federal Office of Public Health after a few sessions. We were legally required to write back to them anyway after a year, but um, we can write back in between then and say, okay, we've done three sessions with MDMA, the person is progressing, but we feel that with this substance, they can't go quite as deep as they need to. We have, or we have one, two, three reasons why maybe this comorbidity with, you know, alcohol use disorder might be better addressed. And so you have to, you know, copy paste the, 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 re, the research and what have you again. And, and then we could switch substances and then we'll move on to psilocybin or LSD, for instance. Mm-hmm. The and LSD is, I hear it's got, um, it's kind of a, a, a Swiss, it's, kind of, it's a Swiss thing, but you know, it's, it's maybe double the amount of time-ish of psilocybin. Yeah. So even just financially, um, the time investment of not just the patient, but the co-therapist, I mean, it's, it seems like an ex- it's an expensive choice to choose LSD. Cause it's, it's, so it's the least expensive one to, to, cause they, the substance the, the, cheapest the, to buy. Yeah. The, the, the medication patients have to pay for it themselves. Mm. Um, are you, are you curious about that? Yeah. So um, LSD, I even have a picture of it. I could show you a, a picture of, of the range. I took a picture to show mm-hmm. you. Um, yeah, what's a dose cost? So it comes in 100 microgram vials, and it's about 100 francs for a 100 microgram vial. And then there comes Which also... Which is how in, many dollars? That's a roughly about $100. And then, wow. and then there's 20 microgram vials, and I don't remember how much those are. I mean, less than 100 francs, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then psilocybin is very expensive. It's it's uh, seventy five francs, or roughly about seventy five dollars, a five milligram pill. We mm. don't have um, we don't have the Usona one size fits all pill in mm-hmm. Switzerland. We have, which I think is beautiful, and I I'm really happy about that. Psilocybin comes metered out, just like LSD does, also in twenty microgram uh, increments, but psilocybin comes in five milligram increments. So that allows me to really determine a, ro- a dosage range. I mean, you know, a hundred, like $400 a dose. So yeah, to get, like, 450 and there's a special shipping fee of $70 cause it comes in a special refrigerated container and it, it arrives on a Wednesday. And so, you know, so yeah, it's, it's expensive and that for sure patients have to pay for out of pocket. And then, um, MDMA is roughly, I'm thinking somewhere between 40 and 60 francs a pill. And those are 25 milligram pills or 40 milligram pills. And, um, and then you have to do the math, you know, if you want to do like the MAPS protocol of 125 milligrams, you know, you're using five of them. And then you're, if you put a booster, then you're putting another two or three, depending how you're doing the math with those, with the 40 and the 25s. But to get back to your question about the time involved and all that, you know, when I'm doing a session, whether it's MDMA, LSD, psilocybin, my office is reserved for the day. I mean, that, my office is just blocked for the day. Because I'm, I'm, I'm not good to do anything else than that. 
I mean, really, and I, I host these sessions on Fridays, not just for the patient to recover, but for me also to, you know, to, to practice self-care afterwards. I, I, I can't do an LSD session and then just start up again and see 10 patients the following right. days if nothing happens. And you always have a co-therapist. And I always have a co-therapist. Mm-hmm. I always have a co-therapist. So, yeah, um, so I'm working down from there. Um, to ketamine. So ketamine is the first times now that I'm working on my own with patients. And there it's a half day. I, you know, I, again, I like to give myself space. You know, some people I've, I've seen with ketamine, the, pretty much the same dose. I'm using lozenges that are 60 milligrams. And I'm giving them at T0, the first lozenge, and somewhere around T10 to to 20, the second lozenge, and then maybe a quarter of a lozenge, another 20 Of a 60, six zero. Six zero, yeah. 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 So some people, the experience is really short, an hour and a half, and some people it's three hours, and they're still feeling really groggy and what have you. So I don't want to feel like a meter is running and, you know, and the and a doorbell is going to ring and ready or not, you know, you got to get up and get into a Uber. You know, I, I don't want that. Mm-hmm. That's not a vibe that's going to be conducive to anybody's well-being, especially not the patient's and, and not mine either in terms of my mindset as, you know, as, as the person who's uh, facilitating these yeah. experiences. People get so depleted. Mm-hmm. Uh, post-MDMA. And so what I've been finding now is how interesting it is to um, maybe a, a week later, two weeks later, to have a ketamine session afterwards, which because people have been tapered off their meds, and some of them have been taking meds for decades. So that is so hard. Oh, my God. And sometimes with MDMA sessions, it gets worse before it gets better. Right? You, you're making a... Mm-hmm. People can't see you, but you're nodding in this very <laughs> knowing way, you know? And so I'm finding how interesting it is to to interleave ketamine in between MDMA sessions. And also how interesting it is that ketamine is actually helping to train patients with MDMA to get more out of their session the next time. Because ketamine is such an inward-directed experience, right? The, the vortex is going this way, mm-hmm. whereas... MDMA, the vortex is going outward, right? You're, you're really, it's, it makes you very, you know, it's an empathogen and tactogen, and, and it's really hard sometimes to encourage people to go inwards. And so if you do this ketamine session, it actually is making people realize the benefit of going inwards more. It's, it's really, I found that so interesting. So sometimes I'll even preface the MDMA sessions with a ketamine session so that they learn that going inward, what that's about. And they and they meet the medicine, they meet the session, they, I mean, they meet the setting, all those kinds of things in a short uh, lozenge session. What have you learned so far? What's been most surprising or interesting in doing this work with your patients? And um, yeah, I would imagine there's been some surprising things unfold. Okay, so I I, I like poetry, so I'm going to seize on the S in surprise and and go through the is it an anagram? I don't know. Set setting session, you know. So already 
I mean, as you must know, um, when you do this work, you have to kind of relearn what you're doing, right? I, I love Michael Mithifer. He he has an uh, thing. It's it's W A I T. Mm. Why am I talking? Mm. Right. Or why am I touching? I've also heard that. I yeah, like that that's too. a good yeah. one too. Mm-hmm. I, I thank you for that. Mm-hmm. I, I I'm gonna take that one for sure and think about. So. So you you know you have to rethink your, everything and but I was thinking you know set session setting substance sitter and so we started rethinking the S's and one that I feel really I mean it's it's a profound value of our of our center is self directed so that's the top of the list this is a self directed approach. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that already is a real shift in stance, more S's. <laughs> you're going to have to get used to me about this. So, um, so, yeah, there's a real shift in stance. In fact, I even embody it in my office. So usually my, you know, my, my couch would be over there and my chair would be over here. When people come into my office, I actually set up different chairs here and here, you know. Instead of north and south, they're east and west, to already say, you know, we're not going to be in the normal talk therapy setting. You know, something very different is going to be going on here. So, so there's that. And then sitter, I don't really like the word sitter. I, 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 I think that there, we, we, we scratch. It's kind of infantilizing. Yeah, so we, we like, I mean, we have a, a sort of a metaphorical term. We, we call ourselves Sherpas. Mm. Because we're not guides. An S-word, of course. An S-word, of yeah. course. There are more. It's coming. So what am I learning and what is, what is surprising me? So, so I'm, you know, here I'm going from being, you know, a, a really longly trained adult and child psychiatrist and, you know, eight years of Freud, you know, a lot of, a lot of EMDR, a lot of other things, all those trainings, and I'm becoming a Sherpa, mm-hmm. right? So that already was kind of surprising. And why am I talking? And then... But the Sherpa is because you want to be, you know, it's a dynamic process. I, sometimes you want people to sit with, but sometimes you kind of have to think about those Stan Groff's, Groff perinatal matrices, and you do kind of want people to have some sort of in and through impetus. You know, there, you have to kind of figure out what's going to be the best, you know, and it's not a one-size-fits-all thing. So there's that. And then... We're moving down the list, and you know we've got other S's, like we we think about sustenance. So we think about nutrient. We were talking about that. We're both drinking mushroom coffee, which I brought from Switzerland Thank today. You. I like it. And so we're thinking about sustenance, and we're thinking about you know what people are eating before the, their sessions, what they're going to be eating after their sessions, what supplements they're taking, things like that. Very important to know about supplements anyway. People don't tell you about their supplements, and they tell you about their medication. That's something that's very important. I don't work with ayahuasca, but, you know, somebody who's just taking something like ginkgo, I mean, that can really be dangerous, actually, with ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to really do your due diligence about that. So we're, we're doing that. And moving down the list, you know, sustenance, sustainability. We're talking about, you know, integration and actionable plans afterwards. But then we get to stuff that you don't see talked about in manuals. And so I've got some anecdotes about it. So, you know, it's the last S on our thing. It's, it's spirit. So people talk about spiritual experiences or mystical experiences and their spirituality and all that. And I'm, I'm actually talking about proper spirit. So 
I start guiding sessions or whatever, sherpaing sessions. And um, initially, I, I think I took on a stance of a, of a willing suspension of disbelief. How about that? You know, I'm another S. So I'm I'm there, and people are saying, you know, I'm I'm up in the universe, and I'm dialoguing with my great 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 grandmothers on both sides, and I'm sitting there, and I'm going, you do that, and another person will say, you know, I'm my parents have come, and they're telling me you don't need to struggle, and I'm saying, and okay, so what's alive in you when that happens, you know, and. Or someone's saying, you know, my, the two, my twin fetuses that didn't make it have come to say goodbye. Again, I'm, you know, and I'm just, I'm just doing inquiry. I'm just saying, okay, so, and, and so how is that for you? And, you know, and, and how do you feel in your body? You know, I'm going there. So, I'm, you know, I'm hearing all these visitations come. And then one day, a woman with, you know, very dilated pupils is, is kind of looking at my co-therapist, Bianca, whom she's barely met. I mean, she, she met her through the prep process and what have you, but she doesn't know her like she knows me. And she's saying, Bianca, your mother's here. Now, Bianca's mother was a tribal woman from Papua New Guinea. I mean, you can't make Bianca's mother up. And Bianca's not of age where you would think that her mother wouldn't be with us anymore in a way, you know? So she, and she is describing Bianca's mother in minute detail down to the combs that she has in her hair. I mean, and so Bianca's in tears at this point. Mm. And, and I'm like, okay, Bianca, I'm, I'm going to pour you a cup of tea. You know, I, I'm sorry. I, all of a sudden I have, you know, two persons who are having this. And so I'm, I'm even having goosebumps telling you about this, right? And so I'm saying out to the room, I'm like, okay, what do I do with this? You know, I'm asking my typical question, how is that for you? I'm taking care of Bianca. I'm offering to Bianca if she'd like to leave the room for a few minutes and, you know, whatever. And so I'm saying out to the room uh, a greeting. I, I happen to know Bianca's mother's name and is a two-name name. I, I can't say it because... As I'm saying it, I'm realizing that the patient has the same first name as Bianca's mother. Oh, wow. <laughs> hmm. So I'm just like, welcome. And, you know, do you have any wisdom or, you know, thank you for coming? You know, what would you like to impart to us today? I mean, I, I'm just kind of ad-libbing at that point. So I went from willing suspension of disbelief to in my mind, cueing the monkey's song, Hey, Hey, I'm a Believer, you know? <laughs> and if that doesn't date me, I'm older than you, Craig, okay? <laughs> oh, what a story. So, so we have a talk now with patients when we're doing prep. I mean, we really go through the S's, and I'm probably forgetting a couple because I don't have my notes in front of me now. But, um, and we're talking about spirit. And I haven't seen that in any manual, any book, you know, maybe the underground talks about it, but... Um, yeah. When yeah. I did some psychedelic-assisted therapy, the therapist asked me at the beginning, she said, would you be willing to consider that you could have encounters with some of your patients who've suicided, that they might come visit you? Okay, so... Yeah, and I it was actually... Because that was one of the things I was working on, and uh, yeah, that happened. But I was... There was such an interesting way to start it, like, would you entertain the possibility that the, these people might have something to say to you oh. yeah 
Oof. Yeah, it was really intense. But also, I think it was such a. She really created such a container and safe place. I just knew mm. that she, whatever came up, she was ready for it. And even the fact mm. that she sort of floated that out there to me that, hey, this could happen. You're learning as you go. And, you know, I, I like to quip, you know, I've, I've been kind of training all my life. I'm going to be training the rest of my life. I'm going to be training into my next life to do this right. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, I like to train, but I, I really feel like there's still so much to learn. I'm really, I'm still really wet behind the ears. I was just thinking about this idea of self-directed. Self-directed. Yeah, and I was thinking a a way, a kind of uh, difficult lesson I've learned, and I've heard other therapists talk about this too, and including some underground people, is that one way that you do not want it to be self-directed is to have the client slash patient journey or weigh in on the dose. Because I've had people in ketamine sessions, I've had, again, therapists I've talked to both on and off the podcast and underground people where the client journey or patient was pushing really hard often for a big dose of whatever mm. that that's what and 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 i've been in that boat with ketamine um mm. a few times where I, against my better judgment someone was pushing hard for to, to go big on the dose and you know luckily nobody got permanently hurt but th- there were some really scary things that happened and uh, some of the underground people i know have, have said the same and i think that's a way where i, I think the you know, we really have to actually be hierarchical. I mean, we could suggest maybe a range to people, but yeah, we have to say, that's what I do. This is what's, ha- yeah. And someone says, well, I want to go big and do X. You know, I, I feel like I need this or this is my one chance or this is all the money. Mm-hmm. I've heard that a lot. This is all the money I have to only be able to afford, you know, these two ketamine treatments or this amount of yeah. psilocybin work. And so I think then the therapist or me or whoever can feel this pressure, like, ooh, we got to, we, yeah. we have to serve you up some big experience because this is all, all we got. Yeah, so no. In, in Switzerland, you know, those, those special licenses, they're good for a year. And I'm telling people we don't have to pack it in in the first session. We have an entire year, and then I can write and ask to renew it for another year. And I can write and ask to renew it for another year. So, so no, we don't have that pressure. I mean, when you when you talk to researchers who are doing the MAPS protocols, you know, they had to pack everything in three sessions, and ready or not, you know, that's all you got. And you know, a lot of people aren't done by three sessions. You mm-hmm. know, but I, what I I always say with the first session, it's it's you're meeting the medicine. You're and 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 it's really I have an anecdote about that. It's I have a patient who 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 said you know, who was not substance naive. And, um, but then he had the dosing session, and then he said, you know, I wasn't substance naive, but I was setting naive, mm. you know. And, um, but for B, what I'll do is I will put a, so in the first session is sort of a calibration dose, and I will put a range. So imagine those psilocybin capsules that come 
five milligrams each, I'll put somewhere between 15, which is a very light psycholytic dose. And I really like Torsten Passy's work on psycholytic doses. You know, Mm. more is not necessarily better. 80 80 micrograms, you know, Aldous Huxley wrote the last post-it note to Laura asking for 75 micrograms, you know. Mm -hmm. Sometimes those light doses... Can can do a lot as with ketamine. I think it's a lot really of really true with ketamine. Yeah, especially very for true the psycholytic yes. um, psychotherapy work. And yeah. and also in in the sense of the session, you know, when you're in those light doses, you're also building your alliance with the patient in this new setting. You know, it's giving them the opportunity to 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 settle in and and to see how you've shifted in your stance and and it's it's building trust and what have you. So I'll put. A range anywhere from 15 for a first session, 15 to 25 milligrams. And I'll say, you know, if if really we see after an hour or so that nothing is happening, you know, we, I, I, I do have potentially a booster dose, but you know, we might we might use it or we might not, you know. And it's my discretion as to whether or not I will do that. And so that's sort of a first calibration dose of meeting the medicine, meeting the the setting. You know, really, they're they're setting naive, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's really unfolding then and there, you know, you're, you're, you're on the floor on, on yoga chairs, you know, your, 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 just your stance has shifted with your patients, you know, so, so for everyone, those light doses, I think are, are very interesting. And I've never had anybody, um, do forcing saying with me, um, that they that they want more or what Maybe have you. Maybe the Swiss are too polite for that. No, I mean, no. and plus a lot of my, my patients are humanitarian aid workers mm. who are, from, you need to be a resident of Switzerland. You mm. don't need to be Swiss, but okay. you need to be a resident, which is actually kind of problematic because there are a lot of Swiss people living across the French border or across the German border who therefore can't qualify for psychedelic-assisted therapy in their country. Mm. It's kind of a weird kink yeah. in the law that they probably should think about. But, you know, I'm saying it's a first, the first dose is calibration dose. And the second time they come or the third time they come, I'm still saying, you know, we can calibrate. How are you today? Did you sleep well? How tired are you? You know, where are you? You know, I'm meeting the person where they're at each time. So I'm not one size fits all, you know, the red pill or the blue pill, one, you know, 25 milligrams for everyone. No, I mean, maybe... One time, the person will need a little bit more, or sometimes, and and I I do feel that that I don't I don't get in those power dynamics that you were talking about. I I feel like it, it's engaging the patient in the process. Now there are some that say you know you're the doctor, you decide. And I said okay, fine, I'm the doctor, I decide, and and I situate you at, at this dose today, you mm-hmm. know, and 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 then we can always add a booster on, in case, and that goes fine. I wonder you've done a lot of different trainings, and and then now you um, you know there's a lot of people in the U.S. have done who've done a lot of psychedelic training, but haven't had the opportunity to do a lot of legal work, and you, you're getting to do that. Are there certain things that stand out, sort of ideas, concepts, words of wisdom in the different trainings that you've uh, done that you're finding you know in your day to day work 
with these substances really helpful. I'll just share one for, it just occurred to me that, you know, in the maps work, they they talk a lot about the inner healer and trusting the process. And that's, that was hard for me, you know, as a medical doctor, as a psychiatrist, because, you know, people come in and they are often very ill and things are very bad and we need to take action. And the process is actually either as a partnership or what am I going to do? So this idea that there's this inner healer that's somehow mysteriously going to sort of emerge and help people work through this deep trauma, often complex PTSD. But of course that's what happens. But I remember as it was unfolding, um, being one, so glad that I'd had training (laughs) to to (laughs) tell me to just like trust that if you set things up right and you, you know, like it's sort of almost like a chemical reaction. Like if you, if you have the right ingredients, like it, it will move forward and it just, but probably not going to move forward in the way that you expected, but that's fine to just be going with curiosity and patience and just know that things are going to kind of move the way they're going to move. And that's good. And that was just the antithesis. Or, or not, of, or people get stuck. Right, right. And then you have to know what to yeah, do when they get yeah, stuck, right? Right. But it's just not the way. I mean, it's kind of the way psychotherapy works a little bit, but it's it's much more. But it's not. It's, it's not, different. It, it's much more just trusting in this sort of other process that's hard, really hard to understand. Yeah. But I want to, um, that so, was my so, long-winded way, if there are things, because um, that, again, that's the thing that really stood out for me in doing, uh, working in the MAP study with MDMA, that, boy, I was so glad that they really hammered that into us, that mm-hmm. this idea that um, there's a whole, you know, kind of mysterious process going on that we're there to try to, you know, witness and, you know, explore, and I don't even want to use the word catalyze, it's more like we're creating the the environment for this complicated reaction to move forward yeah the container yeah so you're yeah. going from the frame to the container yeah, yeah. already that right mm-hmm. you know talk about you know getting things hammered in mm-hmm. 8 years of the frame the frame the frame the frame the frame yeah. and now I'm in it's the container yeah but you've done a lot sounds like a lot more formal training in different programs than I have and and now you're doing really cool work and I just wonder if there's things that you sit and think wow that was really helpful or maybe that was really not helpful um well, thanks for, for sharing that. And I, I resonate with everything you've just said. But, you know, the very first uh, day of rounds when I was an internist, this amazing doctor named Laurent Kaiser, who's now a professor of, of um, infectious diseases, and he's done all sorts of amazing, he gets standing ovation. I mean, really, he's an amazing doctor. And so I'm just a little stagiaire, so I'm, I'm, I'm not even with a medical degree yet, but, you know, I'm, I'm there to help out. I'm basically there to push the beds, right, <laughs> you know, and, and to gather the paperwork and, and, you know, things. And so he's telling me a couple things. And, you know, one of the things he told me was, Julia, always ask the patient what they think they have. And you will see that over 90% of the time, they're right. Mm-hmm. And then, so I always did that as an internist. And then I became a psychiatrist. And then I started asking, well, what's the story behind your heart attack? You know, because you think you have a heart attack, but why do you think that happened to you? And, and then there's another story. They think, that, you know, their heart attack or their cancer or their psoriasis or they're losing all their hair because they had a, you know, in French, it's called pelade, you know, when you lose all your hair all at once, or it all goes gray all at once, you know, they, there's always a story behind that, you know, so, 
So you're already, you know, looking for the patient's inner narrative around what's happening to them, you know. So for me, going to the inner healer, you know, they ask you to, to, to give the analogy of the bone that's healing, right? You know, that the doctor can put the cast on or can set the bone and put the cast on, but it's your body that's your osteocytes and clasts and blasts and what have you that are knitting it all back together. And I'm not remembering my multiple choice questions from, <laughs> from medical school very well, but, you know. But there's a dynamic process, you know, that your own body is knowing how to do, right? And so they're saying by analogy, you're... Your mind also has that same capacity. So, so what has been helpful um, in, in my trainings? I, w- I would say, you know, I had to learn a new vocabulary. I, I even heard you use some of that new vocabulary, you know, in psychodynamic sessions. I'm, I'm not saying what's alive in you as you, as you tell me this. Mm-hmm. How's your body, you know, as you tell me this. I'm not asking. I wasn't trained that way. So... There was a lot of, of learning a new language, learning a new stance, learning to get out of the way, and really learning to empower the patient with this self-directed approach. That's why we start with self-directed approach before set setting. It's self-directed to really empower the patient. So I would say that has been very helpful. Obviously, all the videos of seeing Michael and Annie and, and Bruce and Marcella were incredibly helpful. I really like, for instance, Katrine Preller. She's a really top-notch researcher. And, you know, she's really conservative. This isn't working for 100% of the people 100% of the time. And science hasn't even figured out entirely why this is working. I mean, they've got, they've got some working hypotheses. So really staying in this humble student stance, I think that, you know, mm-hmm. as a doctor, sometimes, you know, the old guard were really kind of very paternalistic and you know we know and you are just to to receive our tutelage and medications and we're treating you from without and here we're trying to get people to engage with themselves within right Mm -hmm. so and so you have to learn new language and a new stance and new tools in order to help them do that so that was very helpful Just like you were saying before, I don't. I don't think tri- trips, so to speak, are binary. You know, they're not good or bad. They, they're. I don't think asking for feedback. I don't want to set it in a in a binary way, right or wrong. And um, it's my colleague at Fluence who who taught me a feed. J- Jane Gumpel, fabulous woman that I teach the class with, and she's been teaching me how to teach. And so she devised a feedback model. And I, I'm not going to teach it here, but the last leg of it, the last instance, is what we call a growth gift. And so I, I now ask all my patients for a growth gift, whether the session went well or, or whether, you know, it was challenging. And you can be surprised. Those sessions that you think went well, they have growth gifts for you. <laughs> Don't be so, you know, <laughs> they really do. And so it's really interesting that's a good. I like that expression, growth gifts. Isn't that fabulous? Yeah, Jane think, nailed yeah, it. She's I, I so yeah. it's been, really 
It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful term, a growth gift. And so every session now afterwards in the integration process, you know, you, initially I was just counting on them sort of spontaneously, you know, getting out their trip journal and explaining and, you know, what have you. But now I'm saying, you know, what would be a growth gift? Yeah. You know, is there anything you would have wanted to see more of or less of, you know, a growth gift? Yeah. Going back to the fact that, again, tr- experiences are not binary and you should ask for every session a growth gift. I, I firmly believe that. And you, of yourself? Uh, yeah, I think yourself. Definitely between the two co-therapists. Mm-hmm. You know, when we're, we, we, we do this feedback model together afterwards. And also of the patient. And, and so from their perspective, here you are thinking, oh, this one went so well and what have you. But actually when you ask for that growth gift, you can be really surprised what they come up with. And so what you might consider went well they might not consider went well. Or what you consider didn't go well, they, that might not be a problem for them. And so that was the first learning when I embarked on preparing for this podcast. And as many of my, I don't know, I have roughly about 30 patients now that I've been doing these sessions with since 2021. So I've been you know, calling some of them up because they're no longer active or what have you. And I've been asking for a growth gift. And I'm surprised actually what they consider a room for improvement, I guess, mm-hmm. compared to what I might have considered a misstep or a mishap or a mistake or something that I wish I'd done differently. So, yeah, so there's that. I, I can give a couple examples. I mean, let me count the ways. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, about 100 sessions in there, you know, and, and, all, and even the experiences that, so to speak, went well. So how about this one? So I began this year, and it began a bit challenging, and my, my, mo- my mom passed away in January. And we had some health issues with members of our, of our close nuclear family and, and what have you. And, and, you know, life just dishes you up knocks and pings. And, you know, without hubris, but I, I did think that I was practicing good self-care, and, and you know, I have... Uh, places where I go to unpack things and and what have you, and I cold water swim and I and I do my gratitude journal and all those things. And, and so I'm sitting in a session with someone under LSD, and I'm sitting with a really seasoned co-therapist, someone who's got ten years of experience, so really beyond me. And so I'm learning a lot from them. And I'm sitting, and we are really, you know, we're waiting for the medicine to take effect. And and we are very still. We're just sitting, you know, you know, really almost like lotus position in a very mindful stance. And the patient looks over at us, and, you know, the medicine is taking effect at this point. And, you know, we have not moved for 40 minutes, roughly. You know, I'm, I'm really, we haven't moved, and, you know, the, the playlist is going and so the patient says, are you d- aware of what you're projecting? And we have not moved, really. And so we said, well, we're curious. Why don't you tell us about that? What's coming up for you? And so he looks at my co-therapist and he says, you, it's um, something along the lines of curious innocence. And me, I was hopeful sadness. Mm. He didn't know that my mom had passed, right? Mm. And, you know, so I'm thinking, okay, you know, you know, I'm thinking of the, what micro muscles, you know, what, 
what stoop in my shoulder did I, did I you know, embody here that he picked up on that because it was spot on. And, and I'm showing up authentically. You know, I'm, I, I wouldn't want to come in in some hypomanic, everything's for the best and the best of the world. You know, that, uh, patients sniff out inauthenticity like a satellite dish, mm-hmm. you know. So, and I didn't feel like I was so out of commission that I should stop working. But, you know, his, his and so, so we asked, so how is that for you? that, you know, we, we seem to be embodying those things for you and, you know, and what's coming up for you with that, you know, and we just went, we just went in, cur- you know, in curiosity inquiry mode. You know, and, um, but afterwards, you know, I really was reflecting on self-care again and, and you know, and thinking, you know, am I, am I apt right now to be doing this work when people are so, you know, hyper-aware, right? So, so that's one moment where and so I really really encourage my my co-therapist my my beloved usual co-therapist Bianca King she has a self-care regime afterwards she has scheduled a massage the following day you know she is not you know we we do this the eve of weekends so we can practice a lot of I go cold water swim I I drop it in the lake (laughs) and you know the lake gets down to about six degrees a lot of the for about three months so it's it's a good drop just talk a little bit about the co-therapist mm-hmm. um is it your sense that most of the swiss psychiatrists doing psychedelic work work with a co-therapist i'm not sure mm-hmm. um i'm in an intervision group with seven there's seven of us and those seven work not only with one co-therapist they work with several because some of them do groups and some even work together, so it's even two doctors working together. So it's not required. It's government. not. Mm-hmm. It's not required. Again, you know, you're supposed to know what you're doing, and it is highly recommended. I think I sent you an article written mm-hmm. by Professor Gregor Hassler, where he's mentioning, you know, that we are supposed to be working in, inter, you know, in, in co-therapy pairs, and we're supposed to have intervision and supervision and all those things, you know. So. So I would say that a lot of them are, but I can't guarantee that a neurologist, for instance, who's, who's doing this work is working in a co-therapy pair. I, I, I don't know. I know what I'm doing in my office. I know what the seven doctors that I'm in the intervision group, we're all very aligned and on that point. And yeah. it is not a luxury, especially with MDMA. Oh I, my, I agree It completely. is not a luxury. Yeah. And, and so for me, I mean, I'm, we're even... With some of the classmates at CPTR, we're thinking of writing a class about the art and science of co-therapy pair forming because I went from, you know, years of being an individual psychotherapist working on my own in my private practice to suddenly working with a whole range of new people in co-therapy pairs. I mean, so there's my beloved co-therapist, Bianca King, that we are incredibly aligned and what have you, but I've had to... You know, for the MAPS training, for instance, I've worked with a palliative care physician. Um, I've worked, uh, one, one patient asked that their long-term coach, 
who had also done some very serious shamanic uh, training, uh, be the co-therapist. So I had worked with that person already because we had um, hosted a webinar during the COVID pandemic. It was, a, it was a health and wellness webinar for a big multinational sort of organization. And so I felt very comfortable working with that person. I, I knew how they, you know, function, what have you. But, you know, co-therapy pair forming, if you and your co-therapist, you, you, you are modeling something for the patient. You really are. You know, in your co-therapy, much less, you know, what the patient's got going on, you too are modeling something. And so if you are not aligned, respectful, you know, able to, to collate you can do a lot more harm than good, you know? And, and so there's really, a, there are a lot of factors that go into co-therapy pair forming that, that really have been written about. So we actually want to start thinking about writing about that. So that's what we're going to... Oh, that would be great. Yeah. yeah. Because I, I'm, not, I'm not so interested in what the credentials of the person are. I'm, I'm interested in what they're bringing as a human being, you know, to the mix. I mean, I'm always sort of the, the fixed variable because all the patients are my patients up until now. This might change. I might actually go into somebody else's practice and be their co-therapist now. But for now, you know, so I'm zippering in somebody from the outside. And so I'm not so much interested in their credentials. I mean, they can be any number of things, you know, within reason. You know, again, the law doesn't say that thou must be a psychiatrist. You know, you can be... A nurse. Um, I've worked with nurses. I've worked with people who've trained in hypnosis. I've worked with people um, who are palliative care physicians. I've worked with psychiatrists, but who have worked more in like international organizations. I've worked with all sorts of people from different horizons, and 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 so I I really um, think about you know what's going to be the good duo for this patient. You know, would two women be a good idea? You know, do do we need to have the man-woman team thing? Mm -hmm. You know, and I don't necessarily think. I, first, I want two people who know what they're doing, mm -hmm. and who who work well together. That's, that's that seems to be the key point. That yeah, right. really more, even more important. More than important their backgrounds like are they more, work, Yeah, can they work well together? Can yeah. they work well together? And and for some people, working well together means that they're absolutely aligned and they're doing the same thing. For me, I, it's more what are they bringing that I don't know how to do mm -hmm. so that we have the widest range of toolkit possible. What else, what else could they bring to the table? You know, I've got one person who lived in Thich Nhat Hanh's Plum Village for four years, is a Stan Groff uh, legacy trainer, breathwork person. I mean, that person brought so many tools that I couldn't even begin to scratch the surface of knowing how to do, even if I hosted breathwork you know, workshops that yeah. I called Wim Groff. <laughs> <laughs> you can imagine like a psychiatrist paired with a somatic therapist or, you know. Yes, or... Uh, an ergo, how do you say ergotherapist? Occupational therapist? Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, for sure. A yeah. nurse, a nurse is fabulous. Right, my co-therapist in the MDMA study was a nurse and yeah. um, she's great and body worker. She's a totally different experience than me and oftentimes when she would speak, I would think I would never say that. And that's so interesting. Yeah. Like she would, or the things she would just offer up, I think that would never occur to me in a million years. And she would say the same thing to me. Whoa, where'd that come from? Right. But, but we were, you know, we had a good Venn diagram, but we had very different backgrounds, which I think, yeah, we had a wide, right. wide skill set. 
I just I'm, I'm doing a class right now on on fluence. I'm I'm, I'm attending a class, and it's Ryan Westrom. You are a training junkie. I am. You I love are. to train. I I really do. But Ryan Westrom, oh my God, this class on boundaries is absolutely fabulous. And mm. and so he was doing some clinical vignettes, and the clinical vignette that he gave, offered up on Monday, which really happens, is. Um, one of the co-therapists is doing too much self-disclosure. Mm. And so what do you do then? Mm. And so, you know, Jane Gumpel is also on the class, and she's cracking up looking at me, and she sort of chimes in, well, I just kicked Julia under the table. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, because we have such an affectionate relationship, that would be absolutely welcome and and I would be going, oops, sorry, and 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 totally dialing back, right? If that happened, but maybe somebody else who kicked me under the table. I don't know, you know. Mm-hmm. You see, I, I think. Um, I mean, to me, that's what really good supervision and consultation is. It's like someone who will. It's like a good friend, someone who will tell you, you know, like you have a booger in your nose, or your co right. or co therapist will say, you know, spinach in your teeth. I, right. I know you meant well, but when you shared about, you know, your dying dog and your mother, like, I don't know if that was. I don't know if that was helpful to the patient. Right. Um, it's yeah, and it's really really important. So, for instance, those bathroom breaks. It's not just when we leave the room and we leave the. One of us leaves the room to, you know, for, for human reasons, but the patient will go for a bathroom break. That is a really good recalibration moment between mm-hmm. the two co-therapists. You know, we're stopping the recording, or sometimes we're actually leaving it, but, but you know, the recording the, belongs to the patient ultimately. So, you know, usually we're stopping the patient, the recording, and we're just telling our Marcella what we were thinking. But it's a recalibration moment for mm-hmm. sure. You know, really see all of you who are going to learn how to do this work. Please seize those little moments to. It's a timeout. It's a timeout. <laughs> time Firstly, open up the windows. Mm-hmm. Definitely, you know, air out the room. Shake. You know, move around. You know, do some qigong. You know, some shaking qigong. Do some stuff during those few minutes, and then calibrate the attune. You know, it's really important that the two therapists attune again because you can get out of tune together. At these times, because, you know, people can get activated, you know, and, and check in with each other. How are you? One thing that happens a lot is, oh, my God, sometimes you're just physically feeling unwell or, or really tired all of a sudden, you know, something. And, and, and then you ask your co-therapist, are you feeling tired? And they're like, yeah, me too. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. You know, so... We're getting the bananas out, some some Swiss chocolate. You know, we're opening the windows. We're shaking around a little bit. You know, we're, uh, you know, mm-hmm. we're trying to yeah. really, really important. Um, you know, but co-therapy pairs definitely it is not a luxury. It is a necessity, especially with MDMA, yeah, but I with agree. all the other substances too. I mean, for LSD. That's just for that. You know, LSD is not Paris, New York. It's Paris, Los Angeles. I mean, it is more than a transatlantic flight. It is even beyond Atlantic cross-country. It is a very long day. It is dark outside. You know, so somebody's doing a Paris-Los Angeles flight, the, the, the crew are switching off. Mm-hmm. 
No way can you do that by yourself. You must be too, because you do need to leave the room and and recharge from time to time. Bruce Palter is so, I mean, he actually goes and takes a nap. That's smart. I think pilots you know, do that in the really long Pilots flights. do mm-hmm. that, exactly. So, you know, and he will tell the patient, you know, are you okay? I'm, I'm going to leave for a little while and I'll be back, you know, and Marcel is there. So, you know, I mean, he's not working with LSD, but... But yeah, you know, you you definitely need to be two in order to to have that that sustainability of your attention and your awareness and and to check in with yourself, to take breaks. Mm-hmm. You know, I think initially that was a mistake that I was making. If we go back to the mistake mm-hmm. question, was that I was feeling like I needed to be there all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I was new to this, and you know, and so I wasn't taking those sustenance breaks mm-hmm. enough. And wow, I maybe mean, that's your mom energy. <laughs> so, yeah, I'd be interesting. Like, I have dad energy. I'm like, I can leave for a while. <laughs> I gotta maybe get, I gotta go do my thing. <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't know because if you, I was telling you the the nicknames that my kids have for me. So one is Pokemon with an M. Mm. You know that I go through lots of evolutions and and what have you. I keep evolving. we're wrapping up um you know we're both here for psychedelic science and uh you know this is a lot of things but one is i think it's a celebration of of the hope and potential of these substances to really change things for people whether it's with serious psychiatric illness or with trauma or just with existential despair or just to sort of reawaken joy and wonder of everything on the planet and i'm wondering that's it you know, in your work, like, what are you most excited about? I'm so excited about, you know, I went from being kind of Captain King, you know, being a, a private practitioner, you know, to all of a sudden being intricated with seven other hive mind brains who are so different from mine. There's nurses and there are palliative care physicians, there are researchers, you know, there are people who really embody compassion-focused therapy and mindful self-compassion. So I'm I'm learning so much from them. It's so you to be you, part of a team because you know, be psychiatrists we team. we mostly work so alone. Yes, it was alone. a solo flyer, and all yeah. of a sudden now I'm it, it, that has been so incredibly enriching, and it it gets me up every morning. My my son says, "Mom, joy is your superpower." <laughs> And and I'm joyous about it. I really am. You are joyous, yeah. And I knew, um, you know, when we, I think we were like ten minutes into our Zoom call a few months ago, and I said, "We have to sit down together. We have to meet. <laughs> we have to record something together." And then when I heard you were coming here, that's so great. I, that yeah. was, I mean, you made my, you made my, you've made my trimester. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I've been listening to you since yeah, 2020, practically since I took um, Joe and Kyle's course on psychedelics for clinicians and they know you i think Mm -hmm. and um that's how i learned about you and and so i feel like i know you already you know you you met me but you know listening to your podcast Mm -hmm. i i felt like i'd known you already for a while well thank you so much for uh flying over from switzerland (laughs) the (laughs) land of lsd it's so great to meet you in person and um 
think I would have come just for you, Craig. You know, really, you know, all aside, I've been so excited to meet you. I am such a fan, really. You've, you've taught me a lot uh, listening, and I really, really love the sessions that you um, do. I was telling you that in the car, you know, I, I, I was in tears, the session about Steph- with Stephanie. Mm. Really, yeah, mm. that, that one took me a few days yeah. even to, to work through afterwards, you know. Yeah. So, so yeah. So it's really an honor to meet you and be here. And, and so you've kicked off the conference for me. I haven't done <laughs> you any. You <do. laughs> So far, psychedelic sciences come to Saj's house. Go pick you up. Bring you over here and record this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's that's well, perfect. I, my that, plate is full. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. <laughs> 